0: Today is September 18th, 2015, and my guest is Tim O'Reilly, founder of O'Reilly Media. On November 12th and 13th, he'll be hosting a next economy conference titled, What's the Future of Work? Tim, welcome to Econ Talk. Glad to be with you. Now, you've had a very interesting career, all of it with a front row seat, or at least a lot of it with a front row seat, watching uh, the internet revolutionize our life and so many things. You started off as a publisher. You still do that, but you do lots of other things, conferences, investing, so on. So let's start by talking about your career. How did you build your publishing business and how did that have to change as the world changed?
1: I started out as a contract technical writer. And in fact, uh, that was a little bit unusual because uh, I I was thinking of myself as a writer about other topics. And I got my first technical writing job the same day I saw my first computer. Uh, I had a friend who was a programmer who got asked to, to uh, write a manual, and he was desperate uh, for work, <clears> and uh, he couldn't write to save his life. Uh, but, uh, you know, I had actually backed him up on by doing some editing of, of, a, of a previous project, and he said, hey, why don't we go in and apply for this job together? And uh, that was the beginning of a partnership that lasted a few years. I did learn about computers. I got excited about them. And, uh, you know, he moved on to other things and I uh, basically had this contract tech writing business. And then I started to realize that people were looking for the same kinds of manuals. So uh, in today's parlance, I pivoted. Uh, we we ended up uh, starting to create manuals uh, that we thought would be uh, useful for, for other people. Uh, we licensed them to companies. And then uh, we realized that, in fact, we could just publish them on our own. And then some years later, uh, we pub- there were a couple of things happened uh, uh, that were really uh, big for us. We published the first popular book about the Internet. It's called The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog. We published it in 1992. And at the last minute, we added a chapter about this new thing called the World Wide Web. There were only about 200 websites at the time. But we uh, we thought this is really what we've all been looking for. We've been working on electronic publishing, uh, you know, and the, and the notion of uh, that there should be a standard uh, format f- to read electronic content in uh, really excited us. Uh, and uh, as we were working on this, uh, my co-conspirator on this, Dale Doherty, who's gone on to found Maker Media, uh, which we spun out of O'Reilly last year. I'll come to that later. Uh, he had gotten uh, discovered this, uh, this guy at, at UC Berkeley, a student who created something called Viola, which was a graphical browser for the World Wide Web and uh, anticipated everything else that really came along. It was uh, you know, amazing prior art for a lot of the modern world. And uh, we hired Pei. His, his name was Pei Wei. Uh, and uh, we, we hired him and to work on this project and, and as we published this book, The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog, he said, uh, you know, I, I could build, like, a, a browser version of that catalog in the back. It was sort of a catalog of various websites. You know, the, if you telneted to this quake server, you get information about earthquakes. There were a few worldwide websites. There were Waze sites and Gopher sites. And so he built uh, this sort of graphical front end to the catalog in the back of The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog. And... Uh, I looked at it and I said, "That's not a uh, a demo. That's a product." And so, and Dale uh, Dougherty had had this idea. He wanted to do a magazine, an online magazine, about the, um, you know, the people behind the World Wide Web. And we, we put those two ideas together, and we created what was really the first commercial uh, website. It was called the Global Network Navigator. It you know predated uh, sites like Yahoo, any of the other portals. And uh, it was actually the very first site to have advertising on the World Wide Web. And, in fact, the web was so early when we launched it in in, uh, early 1993 that uh, the advertisers, we actually were were also hosting their content. So, you know, they didn't actually have their own websites up and running yet. Uh, And uh, it was, you know, before the days of the banner ad, the idea that I had was that we would, that effectively hyperlinks uh, and, and effectively, commercial content on the web would replace uh, sort of a whole direct mail infrastructure uh, that most people have forgotten. It used to be that when you read a, you know, a trade magazine of some kind, you know, a computer magazine or any really any magazine, and you wanted more information about the products you saw advertised, there was something called a bingo card in it. would be like circle number 131, and you'll get, you know, the brochure from Bill right.
0: I remember you know.
1: that. And uh, – I realized that that, in fact, was a perfect application of the World Wide Web. And that was really the kind of advertising that we were trying to to do, which is to say we're going to build commercial websites. We're going to uh, link to them, and, and it's going to be this amazing, uh, you know, utility uh, because people want commercial information. So we were really pioneering that. We, we, we grew it. Uh, you know, for about uh, three years, and, and the web really started to take off. And I was determined to keep my company private. In my consulting days, I'd been around a lot of startups, and I'd watched them go from being really interesting companies to becoming just like everybody else. And I thought, I don't want to do that. So I, I resolved I didn't want to take anybody's money. But I also knew that the web was growing so fast that if I didn't take other people's money, uh, we'd You're be left out of luck.
0: behind. Yeah
1: yeah so so we sold uh g n n to a o l who promptly screwed it up and uh, uh we we did very well out of the transaction, but we went on from there and um uh, you know built our publishing business through the nineteen nineties
0: most so of which was those were just real books, just plain old books about
1: yeah, and in fact they were very very influential i mean we've had Uh, You know, more than one Internet billionaire say, uh, yeah, I started my company with a couple of O'Reilly books. And and that actually, incidentally, is what led to our slogan, create more value than you capture. I was reflecting on this, uh, 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 you know, this fact. And uh, and Brian Irwin, uh, who was my VP of marketing at the time, you know, said, well, we create more value than we capture because, of course, we got, you know, 35 bucks or whatever. And, you know, Pierre Omidyar, uh, you know, got uh, billions. <laughs> but, uh, <coughs> you know, Still it counts. It, yeah. It, 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 it really what made us feel good. That w- And we actually had the cover of Publishers Weekly at some point in the late 90s. And it said, the internet was built with O'Reilly books. And everybody kind of, nobody would think anything of that. It was true. Uh, but anyway, somewhere along the line, uh, I realized that uh, it started. Our, our best-selling book in uh, in 1996 was the second edition of Programming Pearl. Uh, Pearl was a programming language, yeah. uh, you know, beloved of, of Unix system administrators and people building the World Wide Web. And a lot of the early dynamic content on the web was built with a CGI, um, the Common Gateway Interface, and, and it connected basically. What were originally static websites to, um, to d- dynamic programs. And it was sort of interesting. Pearl had really taken off. The buyer Borders told us that it was one of the top 100 books in any category in all of 1996. And so it bothered me. It started to bother me that no one was talking about Pearl outside of this underground community. And so I, I decided I was going to put on a conference to promote Pearl which we did in in the middle of 1997. And it was was really just to market the fact that nobody was paying attention to this super important influential technology. And then I realized that all of my best-selling books were about these technologies that nobody was talking about. Not only had we built a whole program around the World Wide Web, but there were other programming languages like Python and JavaScript. Uh, you know, HTML itself, all of these things had something in common. That is, that they were free, they were given away, they weren't backed by a company. Uh, you know, databases like MySQL were, were coming uh, on stream, Linux, of course. And so, and I, I also realized that many of the creators of these programs didn't know each other. And so I decided to bring them all together in a meeting. And uh, there, was a, there was a free software movement uh, that was focused very much on Linux and and uh, uh, editing tools like Emacs and the the GNU compiler, and it was very much a political movement about the idea that software ought to be free. Correct. They left out of their narrative a huge swath of the of of the world. You know, the fact that the Apache web server uh, was uh, you know probably more important than any, anything of those things except Linux. The fact that uh, SendMail was routing all of the you know, world's email at the time. Uh, perhaps most important of all, uh, that Bind, the Berkeley Internet name daemon, was, um, re- you know, was basically helping everybody find websites. If you had a domain name, you were using Bind, whether you knew it or not. And so I realized that the, the, so the universe of free software that had come out of Berkeley Unix rather than Linux was being ignored. And so I kind of tried to bring these two worlds together, and in the course of that, uh, you know, uh, one of the people I invited, Eric Raymond, had, had uh, been doing some great writing about uh, uh, this, this new world of, of free software or sort of the theoretical underpinnings of free software. And he had, had a meeting just a few weeks before mine. Uh, and uh, at that meeting, Christine Peterson uh, of the Foresight Institute had suggested that there was a problem with the name free software and, and suggested this term open source. And so at my meeting, we actually uh, you know, had a, a spirited debate about this, and eventually everybody decided that this was a good name and we were going to get together and use it. And because I had learned uh, early in my career, really from my early Internet activism around the World Wide Web, uh, and that's really a piece of the story I have to go back to tell you. Uh, this guy, Brian Irwin, who was my VP of marketing, had originally been the director of activism for the Sierra Club. And when we published that book, The Whole Internet User's Guide and Catalog, he said, nobody cares about your book. You know, what we ought to do is go out and market the Internet. And, and that's really the path that led us to GNN. Uh, yeah, you know, it's a good idea. To, to every you know, member of Congress. We, we you know, kind of went and did a press tour talking about the Internet is coming. The Internet is coming. And so we really had done this sort of activism as marketing. So then this sort of open source story was sort of a second opportunity to do this activism as marketing to tell a big story. So at the end of this, uh, what I had originally called the Freeware Summit, but came to be called the Open Source Summit because of the, the big news out of it where we came up with this new name and agreed, everybody agreed to use it. I had already planned a press conference. You know, I told the attendees at the end of the day, we're all going out on stage and we've got the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal and uh, and uh, what are we going to tell them? And and you know the essential message, uh, you know, one was, you know, the internet is built on this software. You know, if you route email, it's this guy. You know, if you have a domain name, it's this guy. Uh, you know, and, and we finally eventually got all the way to Linux. Uh, but it, it was really eye opening for people, and I still remember it. Within the space of a couple of weeks, it completely changed the narrative from. You know, free software is this upstart thing that, you know, that uh, is a cancer Fringe, on the yeah. software industry, you know, going to destroy the ability to create value to, oh, no, this is actually the centerpiece of the next wave of, of innovation in software. And, you know, we were really able to change
0: the narrative. How many, how many people were at that conference?
1: Oh, it wasn't really a conference. It was literally, it was probably 25 it was it was what we call a summit where we just got people together in the room to discuss issues so and i, have a, I have the, the, the actual press conference at the end of the day you know was probably 30 40 people
0: so i want to hear about the transition from paper to something else um you mentioned borders a minute ago uh i'm sure there are people listening who don't know what borders was it was a bookstore it's possible a brick and mortar bookstore It's a really nice one, too, for a while. Uh, It's possible that there will be people listening to this someday who won't know what a bookstore is. Uh, I guess it's conceivable there will be people listening to this someday who have never seen a book. Uh, Your publishing career started off uh, with paper books, regular old-fashioned books. Uh, There's still some. Do you think that's going to stay? Do you think uh, paper books are going to make it? Or are they going to become an antique collectible that people keep just to see what they once looked like?
1: Well, uh, first off, I think it's really important to realize that books were always limited to a relatively small segment of the population. Even when we got universal literacy, I I, I remember back in the – uh, prob- it was probably in the 90s. There were various studies, and it was it was it was in, at most in the teens of the population who read more than one or two books a year. You know, uh, so it's always been a niche activity. I think it will become more niche. Uh, the good thing is that more people are reading today uh, than have ever read, and they're reading you know all kinds of content. And there's a, a sort of a rich you know array of business models to support the creation of that content. And I think we we should be very happy about that. But yes, uh, will will books you know go the way of the vinyl record? Probably, you know th- that is they'll be prized by uh, collectors. There may be various kinds of renaissance of books. And in fact, there are people now you know who still will say you know I, I will prefer a uh, you know a book.
0: Yeah, I go back and a forth, book. but I have a feeling. I've I just wonder if our our grandchildren, uh, our great grandchildren, will have that feeling. It just could be. Uh, oh, ab- ab- absolutely! I mean, I like a, I like a fountain pen too. Um, yeah, absolutely. I, I think, I think, I think it's very,
1: very likely. I, I find myself, despite being a lover of books and somebody who owns about ten thousand, uh, you know, books at least, I find myself, you know, increasingly resenting the space they take yeah, up. It's hard. I find myself. <laughs> increasingly resenting the fact that most modern books are really badly manufactured in the sense that they're, they're big and ugly and heavy. Yeah. And it's so, so funny because one of the things, I am I'm a book collector, and one of the things I collect are these beautiful little bound volumes from the 1860s through the 1890s. They were actually originally paperbacks, published by a company called Tauschnitz, uh, which did, uh, you know, for example, the the uh, you know great British authors you know so they're English they're English language books, uh, but because they were paperbacks, people took them home and bound them. So everyone is unique. Hmm. You know they're not uh, uh, you know uh, mass produced, yeah. uh, but they're they're beautiful little hardbacks, the size of today's paperback, and they're beautifully made. And you know I go that's what a, what a printed book should be. And instead of these big honking volumes that nobody could ever want to carry around.
0: Yeah, the competition um, is uh, is cleaning up on that on that dimension. Uh, right. Although I, it's it's a crazy thing. I have I have thousands of books. I don't have ten thousand, but I have thousands, and I um, I look at them like uh, I, I feel guilty that I resent how much space they take up, as I do, and I go through them and I I find a handful that I can sell at a used bookstore cause, to clear up some space but it's only a handful. I always think oh someday I might want to read that um or yeah. my children to read it. So it's it's a um it's going to be interesting to see how the the next generation feels yeah. about it. My my daughter I, 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 I my agree. daughter's anti Kindle and anti uh, e-book so she's persisting and 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 lugging around Dozens, hundreds probably of books, not dozens, hundreds of books around the world as she gets older. It's going to be a challenge.
1: Yeah, we, we sell books, uh, printed books and uh, you know, downloadable ebooks from O'Reilly.com, uh, you know, our website. And I would guess that 90% of what people buy are the ebooks. And we also obviously have an, an online subscription service, uh, Safari Books Online, where you can have all you can eat for a, for a monthly fee. And that has, uh, you know, if you, if you added that in, uh, you know, it, the, the, the balance would tilt even further. Uh, of so, course, your uh, audience
0: your audience is fairly um, it, it's, it's specialized. Special. Yeah. My, that, right. my last book, I think it's about 50-50, uh, e-books and, and hard books, which are real books, whatever you want to call them. Brick and mortar books. I don't know what the right title is. Yeah. Um, and I have a quote from you. I want to jog your memory. see if this is an old quote, and it's an old story, but I found an article about you where you you were, um, it quoted a quote, early company manual, where you said, allegedly, there is a wonderful rigor in free market economics when you have to prove the value of your ideas by persuading other people to pay for them. It clears out an awful lot of woolly thinking. And then the author of this article about you said uh, that you then went on uh, to reassure that. Your employees, you hadn't lost your touchy feely touch, and you compared free market economics to the poetry of Alexander Pope. Do you remember what Alexander Pope had to do with free market economics?
1: Yes, he said that uh, uh, it, it was actually he was talking about rhymed couplets, and he said that that you know writing in uh yeah you know, I think what, what, what did he write right in probably uh, iambic pentameter? The, no, I think it was hexameter. Oh, um, really? But okay. whatever, and Ryan. But it, Ryan Cumplets, uh, was like the narrow aperture of a fountain. It made his creativity spurt out all the more forcefully. Oh. And, and that was sort of the notion that you know that I had about you know the rigor that you get uh, you know from actually having to sell products to real people. And I actually contrast this, that. That idea is very very relevant today in this uh, you know era where startups are you know, having cash thrown at them. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of bad ideas being funded.
0: Oh, no doubt. And in
1: fact, that's <laughs> one of my, my partner at uh, uh, Alpha Alphatech Ventures, uh, Bryce Roberts, has started this project called Indie.VC, where he's really trying to find companies uh, that need the guidance of a VC, because a, a VC can really bring a lot to the table besides money, but who fundamentally have a business model that, uh, you know, involves – selling things to customers, as opposed to, well, uh, you know, our, our business model is to get funded and eventually we'll get enough users and then we'll get acquired, you know, by somebody who has a business model, <laughs> yep. you know, and, 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 and uh, there are a lot of companies like that and we don't celebrate them enough and we don't value them enough. We're so caught up in this model that, you know, you're going to grow to massive scale, and then it'll be funded by advertising, or more likely it'll get acquired, and maybe even it'll get acquired and shut down. You know? yeah, but That's the best. Uh, <laughs> the business model never really has to face the rigor of, of would somebody pay for this? And you know, every business that I've built has been based on, you know, will somebody pay for this? And you know, we built a couple hundred million dollars worth of revenue uh, you know, based on people paying us for things.
0: Well, I'm in the ironic position of being a a very hardcore free market person, and uh, and yet this podcast is free of charge to the user. It's funded by uh, a wonderful nonprofit foundation, Liberty Fund. So it's 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 voluntary. It's it's consistent with my worldview that way. But but I find it interesting uh, that I don't quote put it to the market test. And charge for it, cause, partly because the competition, of course, is, is out there at, mostly at zero. Um, so it's, uh, it's an interesting uh, phenomenon for me.
1: But the thing I would say on that
0: front, there are a lot of business models for
1: content. Now, one of the earliest pieces that I wrote in terms of sort of public advocacy for ideas was a piece called Publishing Models for Internet Commerce back around 1994. And I made the argument that publishing was, uh, really a better template for how to think about the evolution of the internet than, uh, than other media. A lot of people were thinking about it like, uh, you know, television. Correct. In fact, there were elements obviously from television, uh, but, uh, you know, publishing has this rich array of business models by the piece, by subscriptions, supported by advertising, Um uh, there's even crazy business models, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, as uh, um, Ted Leonsis uh, at AOL said when I was explaining this to him after we sold GNN, he said, I get it. You're saying, where's the publisher's clearinghouse for the web? <laughs> you know, because you know, here's this crazy company. Oh, that that <laughs> would sell books to kids, you know, you know, with the promise of a contest. You know it was just our magazine subscriptions to kids yeah. you know, through their schools. It was this complicated and I said, look this for the web to take off there's going to have to be a rich ecosystem of intermediaries, and it it's going to evolve and look very, very different than this sort of single point centralized model that you saw with AOL or with the early Microsoft network and of course I, I was right we, we, you know we ended up with SEO we ended up with you know, web hosting firms. We ended up with, uh, you know, with new kinds of intermediaries like Google. Uh, and, and it became a much, much more complex ecosystem with a lot of different ways to make money. And that, that's good. So, you know, in some ways, I guess all I'm saying is, is uh, you know, what you're doing is, is entirely consistent with everything else in that marketplace of ideas. Uh, you, you have a, a business model. Uh, that's that's
0: just fine yeah we've we well, thought about adding more content for quote members and i um, i don 't know if I have the bandwidth to do that, so right now we 're sticking with what we got, which is yeah. trying to maximize how many people listen and uh, and not charging for it uh, out of pocket, which uh, i'm sure many people appreciate and like so that that's a that's a good thing um, by the way, I have to say so you've mentioned borders. Now you're going back a generation to publishers' clearing and I'm just going to mention Ed McMahon for people over the age of 50 just to enjoy it. Okay. <clears throat> I, I want to shift gears. I want to talk about your upcoming conference about what's happening to work. And I want to look at some issues you wrote about in an essay at, at Medium, uh, the interaction between technology and labor, particularly in the sharing economy. You wrote the following. There are two different approaches to using technology to manage labor. One provides data and control solely to managers disempowering workers and minimizing their costs to improve company profits. The other offers data to both managers and workers giving workers agency the freedom to work when and how much they want. Uh, talk about that distinction and why it's important.
1: Well, I a lot of what I do in you know, my work is to frame things that ought to go together that people don't put in the same picture. And so when I've been hearing all this uh, notion that uh, you know workers in the on-demand economy—people who drive for Uber or deliver for Instacart or uh, you know work in any one of these other on-demand companies—have no stability, no security. Uh, and if only they could be made into W-two workers, you know, traditional employees, you know, here in the U.S. with uh, benefits it, and security, benefits, all would be well. And I went. This is is, is com- completely ignores a lot of, of uh, that needs to be brought into the picture, and because in general low wage work in America is also on demand, uh, you know, with no stability, with no predictability, and yes, it happens to have W two, you know, <laughs> but but, but uh, you know if you work for, for uh, you know McDonald's or the Gap or Walmart or a, or a landscaper.
0: To- who drives by every morning and picks up people off a street corner? Sometimes,
1: yeah, you, you're managed by an algorithm, just like you are when you're working for Uber or Lyft. And those algorithms are very, very different, though. Uh, the, the scheduling software that's used by these these large uh, low wage retailers and fast food companies, uh, you know, is are programmed to basically optimize, uh, you know, the workflow for the company. You know, as as I as I I wrote facetiously in that same piece, you know, it's you know, we used to think we needed people for eight hour shifts, but now we're so smart with big data that we can actually make real time predictions. And we know that we now need people for these two hours and this one hour and these three hours. And we're so real time that we can tell them you know, today that we, we need them this afternoon. And, you know, no one's thinking there about what does that mean in the lives of the workers? And so for me, part of what I was trying to get across was that, um, you know, all the people at the Department of Labor who were starting to look at, well, should we be cracking down on this on-demand economy, you know, are actually should be looking at the regular wage economy and noticing that the things that they thought were workplace protections have been routed around. Because one of the things in that scheduling software is that, it makes sure that nobody gets more than 30 hours a week, so they're not eligible for health benefits uh, and other you know, rich benefits that they pay to their core employees. And so you have this sort of underclass. And because those people have no visibility into their schedule or very little visibility, they can't actually find other work at all and versus on, on, the, on, on the, the sort of what people call the on-demand economy, the Ubers of the world. If somebody wants to work 50 or 60 hours, they can and, uh, and in fact, you know, or zero or zero this yeah, week, this week, because that's right. You can you your, can, you can your sister's in town or whatever. If you can adjust your schedule. So in one case, you have, you know, people are more and more cogs in a vast machine. And in the other, this this sort of 21st century machine, they've actually made a real time market in labor. And there are problems with that. I don't want to deny that, you know, particularly, you know, I mean, there's a lot of debate about, you know, uh, you know, can you make a good living on uber uh, you know as they've they 've had the theory that if you lower prices uh, you 'll get more utilization and it 'll balance out there 's a lot of anecdotal accounts from drivers uh, that you know make the claim that um, you know it used to be easy to make a good income, and now it isn't because there's too many drivers because of course uber doesn't set any limits
0: unlike you know taxi medallions and the rates are lower so the, their, the rates are seventy five percent is doesn't go as far as it did yeah
1: um, th- you know that being said the 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 economists at uber say they've looked at the data in aggregate and it's just not true, so it may be true in in individual cases, uh, maybe not in others but I I haven't actually seen the data myself, but I certainly know that I know two things. The first is that uh, in the same way that Google search algorithms got better, uh, the the algorithms that uh, companies like Uber and Lyft and Instacart use to manage their workers are going to get better. And as they get better, I think it would be very easy for them to take into account factors like how do we maximize worker income? I mean, not not easy, and they have to focus on it. But in the other model, as the algorithms get better, it can only get worse for workers.
0: The other model being the top-down, large corporation. Well,
1: again, it has to do a lot with what your objectives are. I mean, I suppose you could use you know, automated scheduling software to take into account, you know, uh, you know, affordances for workers. And in fact, there has been a lot of movement as there's been more attention to this issue uh, for these people to, uh, you know, ban some of the most egregious practices. You know, one of them was something that most people have never heard of called a clopen, which is when you're, you know, called on, say, to close the, the, the Starbucks at, at 11 and reopen it, uh, you know, showing up at four the next morning. And that was a shift that was, was, you know, routinely being assigned and, uh, Starbucks, you know, Howard's a, you know, a, a great humanitarian thinker. I just obviously wasn't aware of this when, once this became clear that this was an issue, Starbucks was the first of these people to ban that practice. Uh, but you know, you, you really, I, I think we have to understand that we're living in a world increasingly that is managed by algorithms of various kinds. And, Rather than saying we don't want to be managed by algorithm, we have to say, how do we take control of those algorithms? How do we make them work for us and work for us as a society, not just, you know, oh, I want to maximize the profit of my business? Well,
0: let me, let me push back for a minute I, uh, to add one more uh, obscure 1950s, 1960s reference. When I was a teenager, I worked at Howard Johnson's, which um, there might be one or two left, but it's – It's not what it once was, which was a very common restaurant all over the country, and we called it Hojo's. Um, And I once worked an 18-hour shift. I don't know if it was against the law. Uh, It was incredibly challenging, and I was really exhausted and beat when it was done, and I probably didn't do very well in school the next day or whenever it was. And um, I'm glad I did it. I I thought it was great, and my parents encouraged me to do it. I asked them at one point. The boss asked me, did I want to go work a second shift over to second Hojo's that it had had somebody calling sick? And uh, their attitude, of course, being good 1930s-born people was, well, if the boss says so, you do it. So I did it, and I'm glad I did. And, of course, I wouldn't want to do that all my life. I wouldn't want to clopin. Uh, I think that's probably pretty brutal. But I think, you know, when you say we have to worry about the impact on society or someone has to look out for the workers— Competition is what protects the workers. It doesn't protect them very well in this case, and we should talk about why. But in general, McDonald's has to care about its workers or they have trouble attracting them. They have to treat them well enough to get them to come to that job as, as opposed to something else. The same is true of Uber. You know, The only thing I know about Uber is, is if they really abuse their drivers, um, they'll have trouble attracting drivers. They may attract some for a while because they don't realize it's, it's abusive or they can't make the money they thought they could. Uber can take advantage of them in the short run. They can promise them a lot of money up front uh, early on that they that they deliver on and then change the prices on them, and it can be less attractive later on. We, we all understand that, but if they do that, they systematically make it harder for themselves to attract workers. What I like the, about it—
1: That's the theory, and there's this great line uh, uh, that, that I, I encountered on Usenet. Uh, I forget who, who originally said it. I, I tracked it down uh, but it was uh, the difference between theory and practice is always greater in practice than it is in theory. And the theory of free market economics is yes, uh, you know, the invisible hand will take care of all this. You know, we've all read Adam Smith, but just look around. You know, well, we most, have actually, most people we don't live in a free market. We live in a market in which there are uh, a lot of biases in the system. You know, just for example, I, I, for me, one that uh, that's really I've been thinking a lot about is the increased financialization of the economy where, for example, CEO and top management pay is largely driven by stock price. And therefore, any choice uh, that, uh, you know, you can make to cut costs and drive the bottom line uh, is better for you. You know, so the rational free market actor who is actually in control does not actually have the same uh, 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 interests as everyone else. And in fact, may not even have the same interest as uh, as, as real shareholders, because you can I, manipulate the stock price very easily.
0: But if I uh, abuse my workers, if I lower my wages, if I treat – let's take Uber. If Uber does a bad job
1: – Now, I, I understand the theory, but
0: I'm, – Forget I'm the saying- theory. There's a cost. I'm not going to say it's going to be perfect when it's over. It's nothing to do with theory unless you don't think people pay attention to what their options are. It's not a theory. It's, a, it's I think, a reality – that if you treat if you take money away from people that you used to give them they're not going to be as interested in working for you will they continue to work for you yes if they have no alternatives
1: that's right and that's the point do we uh, do we as a society we have create you know uh, you know through a set of aggregate decisions we've created
0: a set of very very poor alternatives for a lot of people so that's what i want to talk about so yeah. I, I would argue that rather than trying to figure out whether uh, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, which is the equivalent of asking, should Uber employees be 1099 workers or W-2 workers? Because there's no an- there's no correct answer to that question. It's not a question of definition or measurement. It's a question of policy. It's going to help some people and hurt others. My worry is that if you make them employees, you're going to hurt the workers, the people you're trying to help. Well, I
1: totally with you on that one. So, I, yeah.
0: so then the question is, what do we do – so then you ask the, – the, to me, the underlying problem then is that the, that the workers that we're talking about – and I I think this is – I hope this is a major issue in this uh, – in the next uh, set of elections that America faces because people don't talk about it, I think, very thoughtfully. But the issue is we have a lot of people with low skills and who had bad education or whose education doesn't fit with the current uh, demands of, of employers. So the the way that most people want to fix that is to pass a higher minimum wage, or to change the rules of the game, like call somebody a contractor, an employer, employee instead of a contractor, or to say, well, forget this thirty hour minimum. Any of your employees over ten hours have to have these benefits. And I think all those things have unintended consequences that that are harmful to the people they're trying to help. So to me, the issue is: what do we, what can we do policy-wise, and what can individuals do for themselves in their own choices to give themselves more alternatives than this current generation of low skill workers has? Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, not entirely. I, I do think that uh, there are enough distortions in the market that I think uh, uh, you know some improvement to the minimum wage is uh, is a good thing. I I think that. Uh, The idea of portable benefits not tied to employment, uh, you know, to a single employer is a good thing. Uh, I I do think at the same time, and and particularly that latter thing, would actually be supportive of a truer free market economy. Uh, You know, where you, for example, have, you know, when Uber needs more workers, uh, you know, they do surge pricing. They they say, okay, we're going to try to get more workers in at this time. Uh, And that's very, very different. You know, if in fact people are not bound to an employer by uh, that you get benefits here and not there, Uh, that's actually a good thing in terms of allowing them more choice and it makes the market look more like a a, a proper free market than one uh, with some built in uh, biases and distortions.
0: Yeah, it'd be a good idea if we get rid of the barriers that make it hard for health insurance to cross state lines. They get rid of the government subsidy to employer provided health insurance, which is something we just take as and all we 've done is now write that into stone, which is I think a tragedy it's um, it, it's it's part of this problem um, People are worried about bigger issue right we're talking about a, a big issue, which is low skill workers often have few choices and some of their options are not so attractive uh, you're making i think an important point that agency counts um freedom counts. And uh, to some extent, workers will vote with their feet about which kind of economy they want to work in, whether it's the on-demand economy or the other um, uh, more corporate, the larger corporate model. But a lot of people are worried about a bigger issue, which is that we may be looking down the road to a world where there there won't be enough work for almost everybody because of technology. Uh, Are you worried about that? Uh, What do you think we've learned in the early days of of artificial intelligence.
1: Well, I have a couple of thoughts on that. And the first is that, um, there's enough work to go around if we allocate it. Well, uh, I had a really interesting, uh, conversation with, uh, uh, David Autor, who's a labor
0: economist, uh, at MIT. Sure. Former econ talk guest as is Eric Raymond, by the way, who you mentioned earlier, carry, yeah.
1: on, carry on. And, uh, we were talking about the difference between Saudi Arabia and uh, Norway. I said, you know, why aren't people studying places with a guaranteed basic income of some kind? And uh, he said, yeah, it's yeah, surprising. Nobody's really written a whole lot about that. But we, we, talk, we end up talking about Saudi Arabia versus Norway as, t- as two examples. And he said, look, in Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, 90% of, the non- of non-government work is done by, by you know, guest workers. You know because work is looked down on there's also a huge segment of the population ie women who can't work at all and uh, the the people who do work have the uh, most of them have sinecure jobs in government that really don't do anything and as a result uh, you know it's it's a fairly dysfunctional society from a labor point of view in norway on the other hand where they, they you know there's a there's a lot of payments from um you know from the from the oil revenue uh Pe- people, uh, uh, you know, all work, there's a very high labor participation rate. They just don't work all that much. Hmm. They've managed to build a society where all work is valued, uh, where, where, where you, you kind of, you know, work has some dignity and people want to do it. Uh, but you're not actually on the the, the treadmill. And the thing I think about our, our society here in the U.S. is that we have a lot of unexamined assumptions about work. And I think we could, in fact, all be working a lot less. We could be valuing things differently. And we actually, you know, you and I may differ in the sense that, the, you know, I think that there's a lot of bias in our market that makes it not free. I believe in
0: free yeah, market. I, I agree with you, Tim.
1: <laughs> and so th- there's things that, <clears throat> again, if, if I imagine a world where AI can do more and more of the work, there's this two or three things that I think about. One is there are big uh, problems that we are not tackling. And this may be a case of market failure where government needs to intervene. You know, you look at things like climate change. Will markets solve that? Maybe, uh, you know, but I suspect it's going to come to a real crisis and we're going to have a lot of public spending because that's the only way we can get everybody marshaled. It'll be it'll be a World War II kind of situation, uh, you know, where it's like, Okay guys, everybody's going to work on this now, uh, you know because we 're going to get holy cow we 've screwed up we 've left it too late that's that's a, a, a very good example, uh, but there are other areas where you look at you know human caring and you know education and how how these things are going to change and and could we in fact uh, you know have a better um, You know, uh, 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 could we value those things more? Do we need to value those things more? There is a huge amount of unpaid work that goes on that's actually extremely valuable to society. And I think it's also there's another class of of unpaid work, which is work that people do, um, you know, really for self-esteem. Sure. You know, when somebody, you know, waits tables uh, while they're trying to break into Hollywood, they don't say I'm a waiter. They say I'm an actor. You know, when when uh, you know somebody's an aspiring writer, they say I'm a writer, even if that's not the source of their income. And I, I think that there's a lot of of things that we do to entertain each other. Uh, to you know, we're really moving into a very very interesting you know era where, for example, a lot of of the media that people consume is uh you know crowdsourced is crowd produced you know when people are are spending time on facebook or uh youtube youtube or or instagram (laughs) or reddit uh you know they're consuming you know peer-produced entertainment for which very few people are getting paid and in, in some sense, you could imagine, and, and Corey Doctorow did this beautifully, I think, in his uh, his first novel, which is called Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. Uh, it uh, science fiction book about a future with abundance made possible by nanotechnology, and people are are the currency is something called Woofy, which is a reputation currency. And you think we're living in a reputation economy today? People work very hard, uh, you know, to get likes on Facebook to get uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, views on YouTube, and the the transition between that and today's monetary economy is is very shaky. But I think there's something in there that we need to get our heads around. That if, for example, we were all given uh, a guaranteed basic income which is something that we may get to if there's not enough work to go around because so much of it's done by by automation. One of the things we will do is that we will compete uh, to get attention from each other. And it's a, you know, it's a, you know, I think uh, Amory Slaughter refers to it as the caring and sharing economy. We'll spend a lot more time looking after each other and we'll spend a lot more time uh, sort of sharing with each other. And I don't think that's a terrible life. And and I think it really behooves us to imagine that things could be different than they are. You know, this modern, hyper, uh, particularly in America, you know, this this sort of notion of work, 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 very, very competitive, uh, very driven, uh, where the good life has been driven really to the margins of our existence. You know, it is something that, you know, we do not have to accept as
0: inevitable. No, you don't have to accept uh, because we don't have to accept it now. I, just a couple of quick reactions. Uh, just first a footnote, I don't think we live in a particularly free market economy either, but I don't think that makes the minimum wage a good idea, unfortunately. Um, or say a minimum, a maximum 30-hour week, which France tried. I don't think it worked out very well for them to spread the work around. Yeah. Now, the challenge I think we face uh, is the human challenge that we have had for Millennia, which is where do we get our meaning? Where do we get our deepest satisfactions? Uh, I like to quote Adam Smith: Man naturally desires not only to be loved but to be lovely, and that's always going to matter. That's deep. I, I I agree with Smith. I think it's naturally built into our into our psyche and our nature that we want the approval of the people around us, and that's in this particular case we're talking about Facebook likes or Twitter followers or um, or views on YouTube. Um, we're going to make, I think we're going to be rich enough that we don't have to monetize those things necessarily. They may turn out to be more monetized in the future than they are now, but, uh, it's a glorious thing to me that people can enjoy and produce and create and consume, uh, so easily. And it's, uh, I think it's made the world delightful at the same time. Uh, I get a lot of my meaning, not all of it, but a good chunk of meaning from my work. I find my work deeply satisfying. I think mm-hmm. more people do that today than ever in human history, but still a small amount. Still, unfortunately, yeah. many people whose work is, they feel is drudgery or unsatisfying or, or, or worse, um, dangerous. And um, as we move toward a richer and richer world, we're going to have more and more leisure time if we want. And I think it'd be That's a cool. great thing to proselytize uh, and preach that work is not the be-all and end-all. Money is not everything need people are going to say well for those who like their work what is and that's going to not has never been an easy question for well, people again, to answer I, I
1: think that, go ahead know, one of the things uh, the points that i was trying to make earlier about social media is is that we we need perhaps to dignify new kinds of things as work you know somebody uh yeah, you know, again I, I think of 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 an incredible social media feed like uh Brandon Stanton's Humans of New York. I consider that a work of art yeah, absolutely. To, you know, any you know, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Yeah, I've yeah, seen it. Guy, it's beautiful. Yes, yeah, it's beautiful. It's, it's it and, and he has in fact, you know, been able to make a living out of it. But you you think of 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 there's so many people who are working uh At things that don't get called work, you know, there are people who are not Brandon Stanton who are sharing their photos, who are sharing their, uh, you know, their thoughts uh, with other people, and getting meaning from it. and And I think we need to actually go, yeah, just like somebody could say, "I was a poet." You could say, "Yeah, you know, I, I have a a big you know Twitter following."
0: Well, and, and that, that's what that, I do. That may happen because, in fact, it is what people do. It may happen. Yeah. It, it may happen that that produces dignity, that that produces um, respect, honor, um, all those things that that we care about. Uh, it's it's a um, it's not something that's going to be easily. It's not a path we can choose. I don't think as no, to whether. No. I think that's going to happen. Perhaps it'll emerge, or maybe it won't. Something else will. Yeah, I I think there
1: is sort of an an interesting, uh, you know, question to look at of how people get along in, you know, countries whose economies have been decimated. You know, I I think it was a recent piece in The Economist about Greece, but I think of of a a friend of my son-in-law's, uh, a former girlfriend who was from uh, zimbabwe and she was, I was just saying well what happened to the economy there when it all fell apart she said well you know we built this new kind of barter economy you know you knew who had cabbages and you had this and we kind of all figured out how to trade in a non-monetary economy and i, I think there there's some interesting you know things in uh so, uh, both on the on the high side, where you know people, you know, you look at something like Etsy, where people are saying, "Well, yeah, I would prefer to buy something unique and handmade rather than something cheap and mass produced." Uh, but also, I think on the low side, where people are, uh, you know, are, are you know, sort of just sharing what they can. And I, I think the real question for me is there's this virtuous cycle in an economy, and consumers are a big part of it. And so, you know, that's why I have a lot of sympathy for Nick Hanauer when he you know, said, you know, his rant about, uh, you know, he said, I'm, I'm a very successful capitalist, but I'm sick and tired of hearing that capital, you know, produces jobs. He said customers produce jobs. And if we, you know, we screw workers out of, out of, out of a living wage, they can't afford to be customers. So, the whole system is going to fall down. So, I do think that there's a, you know, in the market, there are some real incentives for those who who want to sell things to make sure that there are people who can afford to buy them. And we've kind of kicked the can down the road through, you know, two income households, through consumer debt, through, you know, emerging markets. Uh, But at some point, you know, we have to have, you know, circulation of money for the whole system to work. And it has to be, you know, it can't just be, you know, uh, a small number of people who, you know, which, which is why income equality is is a really, uh, I think, a defining issue, uh, you know, for the next century.
0: Well, I think it's important. Um, I'm not sure it's important to sustain the circular flow of purchases and sales. Which, That's uh-
1: we could have a much smaller, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh,
0: you know, Less growth oriented economy that could work just fine. Yeah. And with more time to spend with your kids and
1: uh Yeah.
0: Or or more time to spend staring into your cell phone. Because I think the I think the deep challenge is a social, spiritual, whatever you want to call cultural yeah. one, uh, which is um making good choices about how to spend the scarcest thing we have right now, which is our time.
1: Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that.
0: We're almost out of time. You've had some interesting thoughts on the Internet of Things. Um, Talk about what that, in our last five minutes, talk about what that is. What is the Internet of Things? How is it important and why aren't we doing it right? Because you've been critical of the current state of things.
1: Well, um, I guess I'm not sure I I know what you mean when you say I'm critical. I I would just say in general that we are building – a world that is infused with technology and whether you call it the internet of things or something else, uh, you know, our future is full of smart stuff and dumb stuff made with smart tools. And, you know, everything, uh, is connected, uh, increasingly everything, uh, is is sources of awareness for what is almost a kind of global brain. You know, when you you know, we're uploading billions of photos. You know, we're, you know, basically, we now have applications that can you know deduce things from all those photos that we might never have have expected.
0: Yeah, uh, I, just one quick comment, on. which just blew me away this morning. I just could, I couldn't believe it. I, I've started to use Google Photos, which I don't love, but I it's there's an addictive part to it. I, I've got a Flickr account. I've got I'm way too photo involved, but Google Photos tells me who are the six most important photo faces in my life. And it it is my wife, me, and my four children. So I get that right. And then I, just for fun, I don't have very many pictures of me because I'm the photographer in the family. So I I, I punched up, I I tapped on my phone my Google photos of me. And there I am on a hike. There I am posing with my children at graduation There I am with my wife on vacation when we went off by ourselves and some stranger took our picture. There's a handful of pictures of me. One of them is a picture of my son. It's just my son at first is what it looks like. But if you look more closely, I'm reflected in his sunglasses. It's a shot I set up on purpose, but Google Photos didn't miss it. It understood that I was in the reflection of his sunglasses. That just blows me away. It's so smart. (laughs) But it's not, of course, so sorry, I interrupted so we have all these algorithms are doing you know, these things I in the think, background I
1: think, but that that's actually a great example because um you know here are, are, are you know we we have been basically you know taking photos now for what you know hundred and fifty years uh they went digital you know in in you know our relatively recent lifetime and new things are becoming possible, uh, because we have this massive amount of, uh, of information, you know, recognition of faces, uh, recognition of voices has progressed immensely. So back to the internet of things, you know, people don't think of the, 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 cell phone as an internet of things device. Uh, but it is, it's a, it's a connected sensor package. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I guess that's what you were referring to when you were, were, um, uh, talking about my criticisms of the Internet of Things. I, I think people focus too much on the device and not on what becomes possible yeah. when you have connected data from that device. And so, for example, you know, when I it would say to people, you know, the most successful Internet of Things application so far is not Nest, it's actually Uber. You know, I mean, people Correct. go, oh, the connected that Internet of Things. I go, well, wait a minute, what about this ability to, to call a car to some random location in the middle of wherever, and have them show up and know that you're there. You know this is only made possible because we're carrying around, a, a, you know, a, 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 the sensor package with us. You know, if it were a device, you know, the, if there were an Uber device, you know, every go a special, thing.
0: a special yeah. thing you had to carry that but had GPS, it's the phone,
1: it, it just sort of seems
0: just an app, yeah. It's but it's not. It's magic. It's ridiculous. This
1: ability to, to rethink the world. You know based on um, uh, you know on, on the fact that we now have sensors everywhere I think it, it, it is going to lead to a cornucopia of new functionality
0: thing that fascinates me to come back to photos or Ben I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this um, another thing that the cloud does and Google Photos Flickr does it now too I'm sure there are other sources that do it uh, it saves everything I don't think about it used to be when you used film, film was expensive. You take a picture carefully, you take a roll of, of, of 24, of 24, 36 shots. You'd get a couple that you liked, maybe three or four if you were really lucky. And you'd kind of be sad that the other bunch you had to throw away because they weren't interesting. Now you don't care about that.
1: Yeah, uh, on the one hand, I I, I think that uh, it, it's kind of wonderful because those pictures are all going to be processed by uh, you know this global brain that we're building, and that will turn into something uh, rich and strange. Uh, but you know, in some ways, it is. A, I, I remember this conversation I had with with uh, Freeman Dyson uh, on stage at our open source convention some years back. We were talking about the fact that there could be a digital dark age as all this data gets lost. And uh, you know the fact that you know we, we we have incompatible formats and and things don't necessarily uh, you know move well, It's getting better in the age of the internet but not uh, not entirely. And he, he, I remember he just said,
0: "Forgetting is so important. Yeah, it's how we make room for new things." Yeah. Well, that was my other thought. You know, I, we and I'm I'm 61, so I'm I'm at the end of this. Uh, the importance of this revolution. But imagine being a teenager today where every frame of, so many frames of your life are still available for you to review. Google Photos sent me a a photograph uh, the other day from a year ago. It's a little feature they have. You know, 365 days ago, here's what you're doing. But the next generation and this generation, to some extent, is going to have the ability, if they want, and of course we do, to see so much of what we did. And of course, much of it's not interesting, which is hard to accept. And I think but that. But the algorithms, the algorithms get better at nominating things.
1: Yep. Uh, you know, we, we invested years ago a, a, in a company called TimeHop, which was one of the first to do this. And you know, it's, it's great because it brings together things that you would have forgotten uh, you know, on a, you know, an occasion, an anniversary. And
0: some of them are interesting. But the thing that's so amazing, all of these services are getting better all the time. It's true. It's true. Uh, in honor of uh, your earlier mention of Alexander Pope and your quote of Freeman Dyson, I'm going to quote um, the poem One Art by Elizabeth Bishop. Uh, do you know that poem? I don't. Okay, I, it, This is a gorgeous poem. It's one of my favorites. Here, here, it's It's fairly short. Here we go. The Art of Losing – isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent, the art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places and names and where it was you meant to travel, none of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last door. Next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster. Some realms I own, two rivers, a continent, I miss them. But it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love. I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master. Though it may look like, write it like disaster.
1: That's nice. I actually have heard that poem before, and it is, it is really very, very good.
0: But that's, that's Freeman Dyson's point, right? It's yeah. sometimes it's not a tragedy.
1: Yeah.
0: Want to say anything in closing about the future? No,
1: I think thank you very much.
0: My guest today has been Tim O'Reilly. Tim, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Uh, thanks for having me.